I make my notes for these calls, the first thing I wrote was LOL and then like the crying emoji <laughs> because anybody that has kids knows, you know, the, the goalposts are constantly moving. Hello and welcome to the Physical Preparation Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Robertson, and today we are going to do our Q&A episode for August. Now, I don't know if you listened to our July episode, but man, I had a ton of fun recording it. I got some really good questions, and I know a lot of longtime listeners, people that have listened to the show basically since its inception, said it was one of their favorite episodes in recent memory. So, hey man, as long as you guys enjoy it, as long as I continue to get good questions, and as long as you're deriving value from episodes like this, I'm happy to do one of these a month because, again, they're a ton of fun for me. They let me brain dump some ideas onto you, and ultimately, hopefully everybody enjoys it. So, this week we have seven questions and man they run the gamut we've got a couple that are basketball related we've got one that's about sleep we talk about tech with our athletes we talk about prescribing training needs for young athletes so we're going to touch a lot of different bases here and i really hope you enjoy it so let's just go ahead and jump right in because next week i'll do the normal intro i got a couple big announcements but i'd just rather jump into this episode and then we'll kind of take it from there so Question number one comes from Martin. Now, most of my questions are very short, very succinct. They are to the point. Martin has kind of this very long and elaborate uh, kind of description first. But the underlying question here is, do I see differences in the shooting motion for narrow versus wide ISA archetypes? And he goes on to explain that, you know, when he lifted or days where he was very fatigued after lifting, he noticed uh, an alteration in his shot technique. So I would say, first and foremost, you're not going to change if you're a narrow or a wide. Like, those are inherent kind of biases that you have. I've never seen a narrow become a wide, or vice versa, a wide become a narrow. Uh, Now, with that being said, if you saw an alteration in your shot, absolutely, we can see that. I remember one of the first days when I was a young kid, 15, 16 years old, getting into the weight room, we absolutely crushed our upper bodies. I'm not kidding when I say we probably did 50 sets of chest and triceps that day. And lo and behold, I go upstairs and try and shoot in the gym immediately afterwards and my shot was absolute trash. So I don't think that was any manipulation of my archetype or manipulation of my ISA. It was fatigue right? And we know also when we fatigue, we lack or lose coordination. So, you know, if there's an acute lifting session that alters your shot, I mean, you guys have probably all heard the old wives tale, don't get too big because, you know, it'll mess with your shot. That's bunk. What you can see is these acute changes, right? So you blast yourself, you work really hard in the gym, upper body, lower body, doesn't matter. It's going to affect your fine motor scale. It's going to affect coordination, and you're probably not going to shoot it particularly well. Now, the cool thing is you do it long enough, and most of my guys are used to lifting before they go on the court. They have almost no negative impact unless it's just a totally new workout and we really smash them. But look, I mean, you guys kind of know me as well. I'm not in there just smashing dudes every day in the gym. So 
Let's take this a step back, though, and let's see what I do think would impact shot or the way you would shoot. And there's a couple things here. Obviously, body shape. So if you're a tall, slender, narrow ISA, uh, you know, you're probably going to shoot a certain way versus if you are a traditional wide, right? So think about a power lifter trying to shoot a basketball. Now, generally, they're not going to be the best shooters and they're not going to be playing at a high level, but, you know, there are natural tendencies that you're going to see. And one of the things that you're going to see is that when you have wides, generally they're going to lack a little bit of shoulder flexion and that can impact their release point and kind of just the general flow of their shot. So what I would tell you is if I could build a great shooter, I would probably start with a narrow. It's probably going to be a little bit easier. They generally have less overall body mass. They tend to be a little bit more fluid. They're a little bit more connective tissue-based versus muscle-based. But ultimately, everybody is going to have tendencies. And that's one thing that I keep coming back to. Everybody has tendencies. And I've seen great shooters that are narrows. And we got a couple wides like Dakota Mathias, who's trained with us for five or six years now. I mean, this guy is an elite shooter. I mean, he is a marksman. and He's a wide ISA. So you're going to see those. Another one, uh, I have not worked with him, but I've seen him live and in the flesh numerous times, and I've obviously followed him because he plays for Memphis, but I'm assuming Desmond Bain is a wide ISA, and you know, you look at his shot, maybe it's not textbook, but I think I saw a stat the other day that he led the entire NBA in non-corner threes, shooting 44.9% from the field, which is just ungodly, like shooting at that kind of clip is ungodly, and he doesn't have necessarily textbook form, you can see his his follow three is probably impacted a little bit based on his size and his body shape, the amount of muscle that he carries, but man, he is crazy effective shooting the ball. So that's what I would be looking at more than anything are kind of the natural biases that you're going to have. I would say, again, in general, if I could take a narrow uh, as a starting point, it'd probably be a little bit easier path to making them a better shooter. They generally tend to be more fluid, a little bit more connective tissue focused versus your wides tend to muscle things a little bit more. They tend to put on size and bulk uh, a little bit faster, and sometimes that can impede uh, their their ability to flex, abduct, and externally rotate, which can impact their follow-through and just their, their range of motion as a whole. So, Martin, I hope that answers your question. Uh, again, it was pretty loaded, uh, and there's a lot of things that can impact how somebody moves and how they shoot a basketball, but those are some thoughts, and I hope they help you out. Okay, number two, again, playing on this idea of narrows versus wides or people that are more connective tissue focused versus more muscle focused. And this question comes from Jean. I believe his last name is Suber. Uh, I don't know if I pronounced that exactly right. But Jean wants to know, how do you teach someone to use tendons or more free energy versus muscling everything? And this is a really great question because it kind of gets to the root of What kind of athlete do you have in front of you? And I think when you look at your typical wides, these are your more muscular creatures. They're going to use more muscular efforts to try and produce force. And while it's not necessarily bad, it's not necessarily the fastest strategy, and it's definitely not the most economical strategy. So I think that's what Jean is trying to figure out is, hey, if you've got somebody that's wide or you've got somebody that tends to muscle everything, how do you make them more bouncy or more elastic? 
And for your narrow bouncy athletes, it's very simple. You train it, right? They're already good at it, so you try and reinforce it. But with your wides, this is where you may have to get a little bit more creative. They want to muscle everything, so you have to train elasticity, but the means and the methods are probably going to be different. So again, if you default to kind of that Bill Hartman uh, ideology where it helps to have an archetype, right, in your brain. So if we say a power lifter would be the truest representation of a wide, right, they want to muscle everything, they don't rotate particularly well, they probably don't yield very well. If I want to take a power lifter and teach them how to jump, that's kind of the thought process that I would go to. So for people like this, I would generally start with activities that teach them how to yield first. So this is the person where if they would do a box leaning, right? You put them on a 12-inch or an 18-inch box. They go and they hit, and man, they can stick that landing. They are very stiff. So I would change the constraints a little bit, or I would change the intent of the activity. So what I would have this person do is like, hey, when you land, I want you to try and land quietly. I want you to kind of go through a fuller range of motion than you normally would. And I want you to hold that bottom position for two, three, maybe even four seconds. Okay? So I think teaching them to yield is very important. And then reinforcing this in numerous ways. So maybe it's with a box landing. Uh, Another strategy or another technique that I like to use, I just call them mini jumps. So imagining, uh, like imagine the groups, the group fitness classes, right? Where they're just doing like jumps for like 30 seconds straight right? Things of that nature where you're going to jump and you're going to land and you're going to hold and jump and land and hold. So you're basically trying to at least initially break up the stretch shortening cycle or break up that connective tissue response because you want that tissue to learn how to yield first. I feel like these people literally can't get into the right position. They can't get enough stretch to really utilize that connective tissue response. So you can do box landings. You can do activities like uh, band resisted uh, type motions, right? And if you follow Mike Campo on on Instagram, he does some really cool stuff with Justin um, and, you know, teaching him to really like kind of slingshot himself down and then stick a hold. Um, Other activities that I like, lateral jumps and holds. So most people focus on the jump. I'm focused on the landing, finding the right foot position owning that hold for two to three seconds. Uh, You could do activities where you're throwing a medicine ball up against a wall, right? And then you're using the weight from that medicine ball to kind of push you down, teach you to yield, and then you're going to throw it back up again. So whether it's a wall ball or something like that, what it really comes down to, Jean, is the intent of the activity. So sometimes you're going to need a little bit more yield. You might need some additional load, either in the form of a medicine ball, um, some band resistance. You need things that are going to teach them to learn how to yield. And I would say kind of concomitantly, you're trying to give them access to more range with the other strategies in your training program. So if you're giving them access to a little bit more range and then you're teaching them how to yield so they can hit better positions, when you bring all that together that's when you're typically going to get a better connective tissue response. Now, we also dove into this in in an IFAST you call lately. So if you're interested in this stuff, these are 
things that we talk about on IFAST University every month, either with myself or with Bill on our Q&A calls. But I think this is such a fascinating topic, and it's something I'm still learning more about. I'm still trying to dial in and refine. But with my wides, with my people that don't like to use connective tissue, they want to kind of muscle everything. Those are some of the strategies that I've used, and I've had really good results. So, Jean, I really hope that helps you out. And if you have follow-up questions, definitely let me know. Okay, number three. This question comes from Adam. And Adam wants to know what household habits we use to prioritize sleep, especially with kids. <laughs> and whenever I, I make my notes for these calls, the first thing I wrote was LOL and then like the crying emoji <laughs> because anybody that has kids knows, you know, the, the goalposts are constantly moving with regards to getting your children to go to bed. You know, when they're very young, you know, they just don't want to go to sleep. They want to get up or they want to see you. Uh, you know, as they get older, it becomes this negotiation process. So right now with my kids, it's like, hey, we want to watch a TV show. Okay, great. Let them watch a show. Oh, well, aren't you going to read with us? Yes, that's fine. We'll come read with you for a minute. And then all of a sudden, you know, Kendall's running around trying to karate kick everything. I mean, this was literally us last night. And, you know, our goal as a family would to be in bed like 8.30, 8.45, like all the lights out, asleep or going to sleep by 9 o'clock. I mean, that was like 9.15, 9.20, 9.30 last night. It was just a zoo. So, Adam, I want you to take this with a grain of salt. Uh, but here are some of the things that we've done. And look, I can tell you about nights like last night, but more times than not, our kids are great about going to bed. And some of the things that we've tried to do to make this a little bit smoother process Number one, we educate them about the need for sleep. Uh, we try and educate them on, hey, this is why this is important. Now, it's a little bit easier because our kids are almost nine and 11. So there's like some rationality going on when they're like three or four. Probably not going to make a big deal. You're not going to rationalize with them. But we've really tried to educate our kids as to why they need to sleep as well as why it's important that we sleep. Um, and I'm sure we have all had that day where we're tired, we're cranky, um, you know, we're snapping at people or things are setting us off that normally wouldn't be a big deal. So I try and educate them like, hey, look, I'm sorry. Part of this is I'm tired and I don't feel like myself. I'm not, uh, I'm not as good of a parent. I'm not as good of a coach when I can't sleep. So trying to educate them on why they need to sleep as well as why it's important for us to sleep as well. Uh, you know, and this is something that I've really tried to espouse as well in like my annual program, but like the role and importance for us with regards to sleep hygiene. And look, I would love to say I'm perfect about this all the time. I am definitely not. But, you know, when it comes to sleep hygiene, I talked about this with Amy Bender. I know I talked about it with Nick Littlehales to some degree, but hey, get your room as dark as possible. Get your room as cold as your comfortable with. You know, we used to sleep at like 72 and, you know, over the years, I think now we sleep at like 68 and it makes a huge difference with regards to the quality of our sleep. I love white noise machines, no phones, 60 minutes before bed, um, you know, kind of the idea of a hot shower and then stretching, resets, breathing, anything that you can do before bed to kind of set the stage will impact the quality of your sleep. So those are all things that I'm trying to check off. 
Again, we all fall short of the glory sometimes. I would love to say I'm perfect about that every single day, but I'm not, you know? So you do your best. You try and educate your children and just kind of reinforce those positive habits. And I think the earlier you can start on that and the sooner you can make that a priority with them, the easier your path is going to be. Okay, number four. This question comes from Adam as well. And Adam would like to know what kind of tech we're using with our athletes these days. And man, this is a fun question because if you've been following me for an extended period of time, you probably know, man, I've tried a lot of different pieces of tech. Uh, Some I really liked, some I didn't or just didn't really pass the test of time. But I wanted to give you some insights as to what we've used as well as what we're currently using. So I know I've talked about this on the show numerous times. I don't know if it classifies as tech. I consider it tech. But the Exerfly has been absolutely huge for us. Um, I just love how it bridges kind of that gap between the weight room and the field, court, or pitch. Uh, My athletes absolutely love it. They love that they can be aggressive with it. Uh, They just love how it feels. It's very organic. It's not like kind of being locked up by a barbell or a dumbbell or even a kettlebell for that matter. It just feels very natural, fluid, and organic. So the Exerfly is one that I absolutely love. Number two, it's been a a hot minute, but we dusted the gym wear back off. I forgot about how much I enjoy using that. Um, Not all of my my guys and gals need to use the gym wear, but there are certain ones where we're chasing outputs uh, that I think it's very valuable for. And couple that with, you know, everybody likes to train a little bit differently. You know, and I've got some guys that are probably a little bit lighter and fluffier with their training. And we push when we need to, but... They see the weight room very much as a vehicle to improve their sport versus, you know, others are using these physical outputs because it helps them not only physiologically, but psychologically on the court. And they feel stronger. They feel more athletic. They feel like they can bully people. So I like the gym aware and I feel that's a really invaluable tool, not just from the bar speed, but all the outputs that you can kind of track and monitor through the jump tests and everything else. So the gym aware is a big one. I've used BioForce numerous, numerous times over the years, including with the Indy 11. It's something I've kind of gotten away from, but also I know I need to get back to because I think early on when I moved into the basketball space, you're just trying to kind of get your feet set anytime you're in a new space or you're around new people. And I don't know if I was necessarily comfortable pushing uh, that side of it. Uh, because look, sometimes people think when you're looking at their sleep or their HRV, it can be a little bit more intrusive. And I think I'm at a point now where I've got good enough relationships and I've got enough rapport with all the guys and gals I work with. I would love to start tracking more stuff and I can show them very clearly, Hey, look, these are the days you're ready to train at a high level. These are the days you are not ready to train at a high level. Uh, if we're seeing people that are consistently in the red, it allows us or affords us those opportunities to have really frank discussions with them. Like, hey, look, you've been red for a week now. Like, what's going on? Is there something in your personal life or off the court that's bothering you? So need to get back to the BioForce. So I got to talk to Joel, get that going again. Personally, I love my Aura Ring. I mean, I bought it initially to kind of get an idea as to how my sleep was because I knew at that point in time, my sleep was not good. I was not getting enough sleep. So it gave me some honest feedback, and it gave me some accountability to myself. 
Because if I see every night I'm getting like five or five and a half hours of sleep, or maybe I'm only getting 20 or 30 minutes of deep sleep, it's not enough. I'm not recovering well and I'm not able to perform at my best. So, you know, if I could get every one of my athletes to either use a BioForce or at the very least wear an aura ring and track their sleep, that would be huge. And then last but not least, not sexy, but still incredibly valuable is a heart rate monitor. And sure, you can go buy a polar heart rate monitor or whoop or whatever, but, you know, whatever you have access to. So many of my people have Apple watches now. So I love being able to track heart rate, especially when we're doing conditioning, super, super valuable because, you know, athletes for good or bad will lie to you. (laughs) You know, they'll say, oh yeah, I feel good or yeah, I'm recovered. But with heart rate data, they can't really lie about it. It's like if they're not recovered, I know. Or if they haven't been doing their conditioning outside of the gym and they go in and we do some more intense work and I see their heart rate stays elevated for two or three or four minutes, after they've completed a bout of conditioning, I know they're physiologically not where they need to be. So, you know, I like tech. Uh, I love the objectivity of it because I think a lot of times what we do as trainers, as coaches is subjective. And I think there's value in that. And we need to constantly be evaluating just subjectively how people are feeling, how they're moving. But anytime we can add an element of objectivity into the equation, I feel like it just really helps us ramp up the feedback and the understanding of the entire training process. Okay, question number five comes from Ryan Franklin. And Ryan would like to know how we avoid overtraining in our collegiate basketball players. Now, first and foremost, I'm going to put this out there. I am not an expert in training collegiate basketball players in season, right? I've worked with plenty of college guys over the years, but pretty few and far between when I get to interact with them in season because they're off, you know, at their college with their team. I don't interact with them as much. Now, in the limited interactions that I've had, there are a couple things that I always try and focus on. Number one, I want to teach them about recovery as a whole. And, you know, you got your kind of labor intensive recovery tools, but they're also the most impactful. So fueling your body appropriately getting enough water, staying hydrated, getting enough sleep. These are all things, they are labor intensive, they take time, but they are also the most impactful. Now on the flip side, you've got more of your modalities, right? You've got massage, you have Normatex, uh, whatever you might have access to at the college you go to. And look, you know, if you're at a huge school like Kansas or Kentucky, you probably have a lot more resources than if you go to... Indiana State Wesleyan Episcopal College. Like, you're just not going to have access to the same resources. So, I think one of our jobs is to teach them about recovery. Second, we need to try and find our best role as strength and conditioning coaches, as physical preparation coaches, where we can help manage or balance the training in the weight room stress. And I think every strength coach or physical preparation coach these days worth their salt realizes that at the end of the day, sometimes we're the only rational person in the equation, right? Uh, And if you've ever been around coaches as a whole, coaches have one track mind. It's like, hey, I'm going to train. I need to work my guys or girls out. We have to focus on X, Y, and Z. We have to get ready for a game. So if the coach has the team on the court for two, two and a half, three hours, You can't bring them in the weight room and smash them with an hour weightlifting session. It doesn't work. So I think 
as strength coaches, as physical preparation coaches, being conscious and cognizant of what's going on outside of the weight room and how that's impacting them when they come to see you is incredibly important. So we have to help manage and cajole the training and recovery process as best we can as well. And then the last thing that we need to be conscious of, you go back and you look at uh, the research by Brian Mann, we have to be really careful in those periods of high academic stress. And I don't have the research in front of me right now, but I know the, the potential for injury goes up drastically during periods of high academic stress. So look, if you're playing like in a tournament or around a high academic stress time, I'd be really conscious and cognizant of what I'm doing with my athletes. So it's not like a one-size-fits-all approach. I think it has to be multi-pronged in the sense that you're teaching them how to take care of themselves. You're doing what you can in and out of the gym to help manage the training loads. And you're also just being conscious of what's going on outside of the gym, not from a training perspective, but from a life and academic perspective to help keep them healthy. So again, Ryan, I hope that helps. Uh, I do not claim to be an expert in that area, but go listen to guys like Jay DeMeo, like uh, Ryan Horn, these guys that have been in the collegiate sector for extended periods of time and ask them their thoughts on that because they are as sharp as they come and they've been through those battles far more times than I have. Okay, number six. Brian would like to know, how do you prescribe different or individual training needs when working with large, i.e. 15 to 30 person groups with limited space and equipment? So Brian posed this question because I shot an Instagram reel probably about a week ago now where I basically said, look, when it comes to our our young developing athletes, middle and high school age, there's a lot more to it than just taking them in the in the gym and trying to get them stronger. And this is something that I'm very passionate about. It's something I'm going to be talking about more in the future because, you know, I was a wedding at a wedding this past weekend and we were chatting with a couple and their son, they believe, uh, injured his back fairly seriously from a high school weightlifting class. And so that kind of prompted this video. It's like, hey, man, why are we taking these young developing kids putting them in a weight room with 60 of their peers. There's maybe two coaches. They're following this stock program where generally the only measurable tool that they're focused on is their squat, their bench press, their deadlift, their power clean. Like, why are we doing this? How is this helping our kids? So, you know, Brian said, okay, well, how do we individualize? And, you know, I'm not sure I have the answer. I'm not sure there is one answer. Uh, but I'm going to give you a couple thoughts that I think will be valuable. And the first thing I would say is if you're working in a large group, and I immediately think of my time working with the Indy 11. Now, again, these are high-level athletes, You know, generally at least 19, 20 years old, up to 35, 36, 37. So they have some training history and some training background. But the first thing that I'm going to do if I'm in a large group is I'm going to triage. So you know, if you're in a war zone, the guy that, you know, has lost his arm is it a way worse situation than the person that has a little paper cut. So if somebody is just egregiously screwing up an exercise, I'm going to go over there and I'm going to try and fix them first. 
So that would be number one, triage. The people that are your massive outliers that aren't doing anything well, you got to focus some time and attention on them. Number two, I'm a big believer in scaling the workout. So what I would do in my group, big group environments is, hey, we have like a, I don't want to call it a stock workout, but you have like a template workout. So maybe it's like goblet squat, push up, uh, split squat, whatever, whatever. And so the goblet squat is your, your main activity or that's your baseline activity. And you assume 60, 70, maybe even 80% of your population can do that exercise effectively. So, okay, that's great. Those people fit kind of the top of that bell curve. Now you got your other people who like, that's too easy. So you scale them up and maybe you give them a two kettlebell front squat or you give them a regular front squat. And then you got the other group on the back end of that bell curve, man, they need like a plate squat or they need a PVC reaching squat. They need basics. They need to learn how to move first. So you're always trying to scale the workout. So you have kind of your standard set of exercises and then you can scale up or down. We've done this with the Indy 11. I've done it with all of the groups that I've worked with. We did, even did this in our boot camps. So you can really scale it and you can customize it. The last thing I would say here, and this probably isn't gonna be the most popular opinion. I hope I don't lose uh, a lot of listeners when I say this, or especially like high school strength coaches. But if I'm being honest here, there are certain kids that just aren't a good fit for that training environment. So look, if there's 30 kids in a weight room and one strength coach, a handful of those kids just shouldn't be there for whatever reason, right? Emotionally, they're not ready. Physically, they're not ready. Um, They're being negatively influenced by their peers to do either stupid things or potentially injurious things. Uh, Some of them have injury histories that should preclude them. I mean, we've had so many high school and middle school age kids now that come to us They've got PARS fractures. They've got spondies. They're coming off ACL tears. Um, They've got hip labral issues. I mean, you can pick an injury, and we probably had a kid that's had it. That kid shouldn't be in your standard stock uh, advanced PE class banging out weights with all of the, the other kids that are healthy and that are ready to go ahead and jump into a class like that. So, you know, I don't say that to be in any way, shape, or form negative. I'm just trying to be kind of honest and pragmatic in my approach. I think, you know, will that type of environment work for, you know, at least half the kids or or maybe more? Sure. Uh, But I also think there are a lot of kids that need more fine tuning, right? For a lot of different reasons, physical, mental, emotional, they shouldn't be in those classes. They shouldn't be in that environment. And quite frankly, it's just not the best option for them. So Brian, I hope that helps you out. Um, Again, I think triaging and then scaling the workout are your two best bets. And then also kind of knowing like, hey, some of these kids aren't a great fit. And I don't have a solution for that, Um, at least not in that world because I'm not familiar enough with it. What I will say is when we did boot camps, and that was a bigger part of what we did, we did an introductory level boot camp class. And if we felt like we could plug you into a boot camp, great, off you go. But there are other people based on their injury history or based on movement limitations that we just weren't comfortable putting in there. And so we kind of gave them an option like, hey, look, um, we don't feel like you're a great fit for these classes yet. Uh, We have some ideas as to what can help you get there. We could do semi-private. We tried to give them some alternatives and basically just said, hey, look, you know, if you want to train here and you feel like we've got your best interest at heart, 
great, let's go do this semi-private thing for one to three months, get you moving better, and then we can go back to that. And if not, hey, that's cool too. There's plenty of places around here that will take your money and they're happy to train you in a boot camp environment. So that's kind of how we did it in the private sector. I don't know how that looks in the public sector, but if nothing else, my goal right now is to just stimulate some thought. And I really hope that gives you some thoughts as to how you can take better care of your high school kids. So Brian, great question, and I hope that helps. Last but not least, Chad has a really good question. Chad wants to know the biggest thing that I learned this offseason with my basketball guys. And you know how these questions go. I can't just give you one. So I'm going to give you a handful of thoughts that will hopefully stimulate more thoughts for you and will hopefully help me continue to write better programs as the years go on. So, you know, one thing that I have learned this offseason, and I think we're like six or seven years in now to where we've been doing a lot of basketball stuff, but one thing I'm constantly reminded of is that you just can't force physiology, right? Like there's certain amounts of time you need to develop a connective tissue base. You can't do that in one week or two weeks. Uh, You can't teach somebody to be massively more forceful or more powerful in one or two weeks. Like adaptation takes time. And as much as I'd like to, I can't speed up these training cycles, right? Like there's certain stops we need to hit along the way. So when I have these guys that are full-fledged NBA guys and I have an entire off-season of three, four, maybe four and a half months where we can really start at ground zero, build them up, have them fresh, strong, healthy, explosive, going into training camp, man, it's pretty damn easy, honestly. Like, you have enough time, you can get the adaptations you want, they move great, they feel great, and, I mean, that's pretty simple. The the guys that are a little bit more challenging are the guys that have more interruptions in their training. So, you know, summer league, Literally, I have to get a guy, go through an adaptation phase, maybe some element of like a force production phase. Then we get into like our speed or rate or power type phase. Then they go away for a month, right? And they do like a a training camp. They are going to play games. They might take a week off afterwards. But then, depending on where they're at, now I might only have four or five weeks to get them ramped back up and ready to go to training camp. So whenever I can have somebody kind of with that sustained or prolonged or interruption-free off-season, man, I can see some really nice changes. The other guys, we're going to have to be a little bit more creative with, and I hope they're coming in with a relatively clean slate or clean bill of health. Because if I got to rehab something and then get you ready and then you go to summer league, man, a lot of things have to go our way for you to be 100% and healthy by the time you get to training camp. So a couple things that I have learned on top of that. Number one, you know, basketball is all about high speed forces. And, you know, I'm just constantly, constantly reminded of that. When you watch the game, especially if you go and you watch it live, if you can watch it at eye level and watch like high level collegiate professional uh, guys, whether it's the G League, the NBA, overseas, you watch high level guys, watch them, and gals, watch them play at the highest levels. Look at how hard they're accelerating, decelerating, planning, cutting. Like this is a high speed, high force game. 
and you have to prepare them for that. Uh, so one thing that I would like to try and do, especially uh, for these guys that I have for an extended period is constantly try and stay one step ahead of them with regards to their on-court work. So if somebody is going to be really intense on the court in, say, uh, August or September, if I can get them into those really rate-dependent things two, three, four weeks in advance, man, that's going to help them smooth that transition on the court. And then when they are on the court, I can almost take a step backwards in the gym, continue to fill in the blanks with regards to their training and working on things that they need, but I don't feel like I have to train them hard in the gym to also have them training and playing hard on the court. It's almost too much if I have to do that. So trying to stay a step ahead of them with regards to their training, I think is something I've definitely learned or at least been reinforced uh, this summer. Number two, isos, 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 especially these bouncy guys, uh, these connective tissue-driven creatures that I have. Man, trying to give them a lot of isos because it, it doesn't take too much. I feel like we've got really good training programs. We get them feeling really good, but when the training volume or when the playing and competitive volume starts to ramp up, Man, that's when, okay, all of a sudden, you know, my quad tendon or my patellar tendon or my Achilles tendon, these tendon things start to come out. So really, really, really making these ISOs a big deal and just reinforcing like, hey, look, these are important. We might have to do these every day to make sure we keep you feeling good. And then the final thing that has been reiterated to me is that, look, as soon as on-court stuff ramps up, there's going to be hiccups along the way. It's very few guys come on the court and everything feels good from the the minute they start preseason to the end of the year, right? And especially in preseason, you know, guys that have felt great the entire offseason will be like, oh man, my ankle's kind of stiff today or oh man, my back's kind of stiff. So kind of understanding, look, there's going to be some bumps and bruises along the way. It's our job or our goal to try and mitigate those. But Sometimes it's going to happen. We have to know it, be conscious of it, and be willing to work around it or be adaptable within their programming. So I know I've talked about this numerous times over the years, but hey, just because it says it on the paper doesn't mean I have to do that in any given workout. Be malleable, be adaptable, and just kind of meet them where they're at on any given day, especially as they ramp up and they get near that preseason period. So Chad, great question. I hope all those answers helped. And again, thank you guys for the great questions. I mean, these are so much fun. Uh, Again, I love being able to kind of share my thoughts in this rapid fire format. Uh, Someday, someday I'm going to get back to writing more, uh, you know, and I can kind of really flesh some of these these ideas out. But hopefully you enjoy the, the content, you enjoy the questions, and ultimately I hope it just makes you a better trainer, coach, or rehab professional from listening in. So... That does it for this week's episode. As always, thank you so much for your support. Love and appreciate you. And we'll be back next week with our next episode. Take care.